I tell you what, if you don't have Jesus, I don't know how you live. I don't. I, I just don't get it. I, I don't know what coping device I would run to if I didn't have Jesus. But Jesus is better than a binge, and he is the best. He is absolutely the best. Now, we're going to pick it up kind of where we left off from last week. This is really part two from last week's message. You know, last week the, the, Jews, the Jewish leadership confronted uh, Jesus uh, and questioned him about his authority. And the way we applied last week's text to our lives, we said if we live as Christians, then we have to have Jesus as the authority in our life. The Word of God is our standard, and it's the way we understand the character of God. It's not a list of rules. It is a reflection of God's character. But then also, people today, we said, question the Bible's authority. Whether you're on the political left or uh, whether you're on the political right, our culture is jettisoning the Bible and what we would normally call the Christian Judeo value system that actually built Western civilization. Uh, and we noted that these social movements uh, have taken on almost the air, the qualities, the passion of a new religion. And basically these new social movements have become really an overarching authority in a lot of people's lives. Now, social, to fight for social issues is great because Christians have led the way most of society in fighting for the underdog. Uh, the abolishment of slavery was championed by, do you know? His name starts with Wilbur. No, Wilbur Wilberforce. You know, he is the one that started the movement in Western society to abolish slavery. And he was so committed to Jesus Christ, he said, that was my calling. He spent his entire life eradicating out slavery, first in England, and then it transferred over to the United States. It was because of his effort. And the abolishment of children or child labor, it doesn't happen in the United States, but it happens in places without Christians, right? And Christians led the way through the Industrial Revolution. Christians have always been passionate about social causes. The establishment of orphanages. The most famous was a Christian by the name of George Mueller, who was amazing what he did to turn around the workhouses that were found in Britain to be orphanages that raises kids up in the knowledge and the wisdom of the Lord. And then of course, the protection of the unborn today, it's led by who? Christians. So we're not against social movements, but here's the key difference. Social causes for Christians, they have to be built on the absolutes of scripture, right? That's what gives us the power, the foundation, the drive, uh, to, to stand up and, and cause a social movement. And a Christian social movement is based on the Word of God. But on these newer type religions, the social movements are replacing religion uh, and they now base it not on an authority except for their own authority. We, we talked about last week about how one's feelings experiences and whoever has the largest megaphone, whether it's Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or whoever has the largest megaphone is getting their message out. But if you're going to disregard Jesus, if you're, if you're gonna disregard 
or even reject absolute truth, it's like you're building your house on what? The sand, right? It's the sand. Jesus said if you built your house on the rock, if you built your life on absolute truth, guess what? When storms come, you're going to be with able to uh, stand up. I said that all messed up, but you know, you, you got what I said, right? Okay, I'm glad you guys are patient with me. Uh, I'm still learning to talk, so that's, that's how that works. But when you base your life on your feelings or your personal experiences, your life is going to get wobbly because the real reality hits, right? There is a thing called reality, and it, it will come in like a flood and rock your world. And your presuppositions, your philosophies, all the things that you've built your life on come crashing down. And you don't know where you're, you're at. So if, if Jesus is, is your plumb line, if the Bible is your plumb line, your baseline, your yardstick, if, if the Bible is your absolute authority, then your baseline is going to be able to distinguish the key questions that you have at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night. And that is, who am I? What am I here for? What am I doing with my life? What value do I add to anybody's life? Or what value do I have as a, as a person? And who am I really? Is my identity in something outside of myself? Or is it all in my body, in my brain, in my stuff? And you have to answer those deep questions. And when you have absolute authority, when you have the word of God, he comes in and very gently, and it takes a lifetime to nudge us to maturity, to understand that my identity is in Jesus. And my confidence is in Jesus. Here's a guy that spent two years in elementary school learning how to talk because I couldn't talk. And God says, you're going to be a preacher. He has a sense of humor. And yet I still mess up words, as I did a little, or sentences. But that's not who I am, is it? My reality, my truth, and I'm not personalizing. I'm saying the truth of Jesus in my life is what changes me and transforms me. But if your opinion, your feelings, or your experiences become your baseline, your plumb line, your yardstick, and what you feel is your absolute authority, then your life isn't based on absolute truth, uh, but on philosophies that change with time and opinion. Can, can I let you in on a secret? Absolute truth does not care how you feel. Uh, because it's outside of you. It's external and it's really eternal. The same is true yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's the truth. So guess what? After you die, water is still going to freeze at 32 degrees, right? When you die, uh, 2 plus 2 is still going to equal 4, right? And when you die, man is still going to be sinful and need the transformation power of Jesus Christ. That's just truth. It's external. It's outside of you. And therefore, it's rock solid. But when your truth is based inside of you, on your feelings and your experiences, well, guess what? When you die, your truth, air quotes, your truth dies. And if truth dies when you die, then it wasn't truth at all. It was just your opinion.
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And so in verses 1 through 8 of last week, the self-righteous men questioned Jesus and basically said, who gives you the right to tell me I'm wrong? Now, how many of us enjoy being told we're wrong? We bristle at it, don't we? Yeah, we get defensive, even if they're right. And we are wrong. We still, especially if your husband, say amen to that. If your wife accuses you of something and you're wrong, you automatically go into defense mode. That's just the way we're built until Jesus comes into our life and we get to see reality, the truth, a little more clear. But who gives you the right to tell us that we're wrong? That's what they asked Jesus last week in verses 1 through 8. And Jesus doesn't answer them. Jesus knows that they're rejecting his authority, so he tells them a story. He tells them a parable. Now, parables normally have one main point, and then they, they have some other uh, flourishes to them, some other imagery that lends to the single point that they're trying to make. So you have your Bibles with you. Turn to Luke chapter 20, and we're going to pick up the second half of last week's event. Uh, we're going to begin at verse 9, and we're just going to read a few verses. We're going to take in three bite-sized pieces. Verse 9 says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Very simple, fill in the blank, it's one word, it's just the word disrespect. Just disrespect. The vineyard, of course, though, represents someone or something, and that's the nation of Israel. In fact, I'm gonna to read to you from Isaiah. And Isaiah is making a charge against Israel and really against Israel's leadership. But it begins um, in chapter 5, if you want to make a note so you can read it later. You don't have to turn there, but it just says this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choices of vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste, it will not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that no rain shall come upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Tells us very plain. And he says, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. 
He looked, that is God, looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Now there's a little play on word because justice and bloodshed sound almost identical in the original Hebrew. And so there's a little play on words and he says he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed and then for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And again, a play on words, righteousness and outcry are very similar in sounding in the original language. So God is basically, and, and these religious leaders know when Jesus is giving this parable that the vineyard represents Israel. In fact, um, the tenants, of course, are the religious leaders in our little parable. But Jeremiah 12, uh, verse 10 says this, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. And so these tenants in the parable have utterly no respect for not only the owner's servants, but that means for the owner himself. And they know that the parable is against them. And of course, the other servants that were sent were the prophets of old that were sent to get the nation of Israel back under God's authority, back on track, because God is looking for fruit. He's looking for righteousness and he's looking for justice. Now, let's go back to the, the text and, and continue on, picking it up at verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, ah, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. We'll stop just right there. And it's another easy fill in the blank, it's the word murder. Because they saw the son, they are going to make an assumption. I'm kind of reading into the text, I'll give you that matter. But they are thinking to themselves, the father's dead. In Jewish law at that time, possession was nine-tenths of the law. And if there was no owner and you had staked out that land, you could claim it for yourself. So they're thinking, father's dead, here comes the son, we'll wipe him out, the vineyard will be ours. So they not only disrespect the son, they kill him. Now, to Jesus' listeners of this parable, this is shocking. And we read it and kind of, okay. We know people that are villainous that would do that today. But in that age, it was, it was just scandalous. It's incredulous that there would be tenants that would attack the owner's representative and they're like blowing their minds because we're gonna read that in a second because they're gonna say, surely not, that can't be. This is an impossible situation. But that's the irony of the parable, just like the Good Samaritan. We've kind of sanitized the Good Samaritan a little bit that when we think of a Good Samaritan, we think of this nice person. But to the original hearers of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan is supposed to be the villain and he turns out to be the hero. And that parable was quite scandalous. And Jesus is actually throwing another scandalous parable upon them to get them to realize what they're about to do and what they're doing. Because did you notice in the text when they kill the son, they take him outside of the vineyard? They don't leave him in the vineyard. They take him outside, just like they took Jesus outside of the city to kill him. So let's finish, finish this up, beginning at the middle of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus poses the question. And, and he, he gives an answer. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
And when they heard this, that is the religious leaders, they said, surely not. We can't believe that that would even happen in Israel. But he looked directly at them. Talk about being stared down by Jesus, oh my. What then is this that is written? And he's gonna quote a Psalm, Psalm 118. And he says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the third fill in the blank is destruction. Now, let's go back to the Psalm 118 thought for a moment. It was a messianic psalm, so everybody knew that it was a prophecy about the forthcoming Messiah. In fact, just a few days earlier, two days earlier, on the triumphal entry, the crowd is shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. Now Jesus quotes Psalm 18, the prophetic word about the Messiah that he is going to be rejected but is becoming the cornerstone. Now, most of us aren't masons, and we don't know how to build a brick house, but a cornerstone was a stone that was really symmetrical, really flat, really in its 90 degree increments, and it becomes the very first stone of the foundation of a house because if it is straight and plumb, the rest of the house is gonna be straight and plumb. But if the cornerstone is a little crooked, a little lopsided, your house is gonna be lopsided. So the cornerstone is the most important piece of the foundation. And the Jewish leader, they're starting to figure out that this parable is against them. But they're probably also thinking about this other stone image that is mentioned in scripture another prophecy about the future and about God's kingdom. It's found in Daniel chapter two. I'll, I'll turn there and just read it rather quickly. It's Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. He has a dream about a statue and the statue has gold and it has silver and it has bronze and it has iron and it has clay and iron and nobody can interpret it. He says, off with their heads, like the Queen of Hearts and Alice in Wonderland, because nobody can interpret the dream because he's not telling anybody the dream. God reveals the dream to Daniel. Daniel comes to him and says, I know the dream, let me tell you its interpretation. And part of that uh, dream of this statue, he interprets and says, these are kingdoms and you're the head, you're the gold. And then another kingdom's gonna rise after you. It's, it's gonna be made of silver, not as good as yours, but still it's worldwide. And then it's gonna go into iron. And then it's gonna go into iron and clay. But then this stone comes out of heaven, uncut by human hands, and it's going to smash the world system of empires. And it's gonna like all blow away. And the only thing left is the stone. And that stone's just going to continue to grow and grow and grow and encompass the whole world. Now, when Jesus is talking about a cornerstone and the prophecy and Psalm 118, these guys aren't stupid. They're looking for the Messiah. They're thinking about the stone about, because they, they knew, okay, there was 
the Medes and Persians, there, it was the Alexander the Great, it was the Roman Empire. They're going down the statue and they're like, hey, we're living in this period of time. So we're expecting the Messiah. We're expecting this kingdom that's going to come out of heaven and boom, it's going to grow. But they don't get it, do they? So in effect, Jesus says, don't you realize that the owner of the vineyard is God and, and the vineyard is his kingdom and the servants were his prophets and you, you guys are the guys that are trying to kill me. I mean, it's just kind of clear. So what are the takeaways? Because we're wrapping this up. What are the takeaways about God's authority in our life? Here's the number one takeaway. Meaning it's not the number one, but it's number one on, our, on the list. The rejected son and the rejected stone both refer to Christ. And Jesus is going to tie the parable, which you can't talk about resurrection. How can the, the son that's killed in the parable resurrect to life? That would have been freaky and it would have blown the whole point. But he ties it back to the stone. And it alludes Psalm 118 to the not only crucifixion, but the resurrection of Jesus. So the rejected son and the rejected stone both refer to Christ. And I know for me now on the other side of walking with Jesus for many years, it's hard for me to understand why people would reject Jesus. It's just incredible. I've known the peace and the joy and, and the, the fellowship with Jesus for these years. And it's hard for me to understand why anybody would, would reject that, like this Jewish leadership was rejecting Jesus. And in Matthew's version, he tells another parable about two sons. He tells one son, son, I want you to go out to the yard and, or to the field and do some work. And the one sa son says, no, I'm not going to go. And then later on, he feels bad and he repents and he goes out to the field and works. Son number two comes along and he says, son, I need you to go out into the field as well. And the second son says, absolutely, daddy. Absolutely. I'll get out there and I'll work and I'll work. Thing is, he doesn't go. People are shocked. And then Jesus makes this connection. He says, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to heaven because at first they were in rebellion against my authority, but now they've come and repented and they're going to be in heaven. And you, you feign obedience that you're under my authority, but you're not, and you are not going to be in heaven. Well, that's pretty powerful stuff that Jesus is laying on these guys. Number two is this. People do not disbelieve because of lack of evidence. They choose to not believe because they don't want to be under Jesus' authority. God has put eternity in your heart. God has given you a moral conscience, right and wrong. He has given you the ability to even look at creation and know that there is a God. It doesn't display, explain who he is. That's why he had to send Jesus. But, but the bottom line is this, this constant theme in our society, I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And you just go, you don't even know what you're talking about. How, would you, how dare you even come up with the thought that you would rather reign in hell 
Like you're gonna like you're gonna get a crown and you're going to party and you're gonna do drugs and you're gonna do whatever you want, than to come and serve in heaven. That's our world, folks. People reject Jesus not because they don't believe that he's the Son of God. They reject him because they don't want to be under his authority. They they view Jesus' authority as a burden. Now you might you might do that when you're you're immature in Christ that you know I got to do this out of duty. Instead, it moves from hupakuo or hupataso to duty to devotion. You know, when you're first married, you do things out of duty. Say amen, men. Amen. Yeah, you go to work, don't you? Take a lousy job because you got to put food on the table. You do your duty. But pretty soon, that transitions from duty to devotion. You had to do it, but now you get to do it. Why? Because you're learning the secret that to serve is the greatest thing in the world. To give your life to Christ that he worked through you to serve others, it actually is counterintuitive to our world, but it is the most fulfilling thing in the world to serve somebody else and love them with that no-strings-attached kind of love. And how misguided it is for people to say, that they'd rather reign in hell than to serve in heaven. They don't understand. Their reality is not good. Now, I don't know if you, you read a story this week. You know, we all read, we all see news stories, but this news story caught my eye. Uh, there was a funeral uh, last weekend, and it was in Florida, and there was a fight that broke out amongst the family at the funeral dinner. You know, they had the funeral, they come back to the house, and there are two cousins, one's a second cousin, but so I guess they're both second cousins to each other. One is a pastor, and the other one is an acclaimed atheist. And they started talking after the funeral, and they got into a fight to the point where the, the atheist, the acclaimed atheist, was so mad and angry that all the rest of the family member tried to call him, calm him down. He ran outside the door and was gone for a while. And some people followed him and tried to calm him down. They came back in. Well, then the pastor was leaving for the evening. And when he walked outside, his second cousin was there. And he shot him in the neck with a firearm. And you're just like, yeah. Well, here's where it gets even more interesting. Is that if you go to this guy's social page, he's now asking for prayer. Not the, not the guy that got shot, the guy that shot. The guy that said he was an atheist. And it just says, wow, there's a lot of confusion out there. And people are confused that they may be mad at somebody, but who they're really mad at is God, because God says, I have to be Lord. Lord. Master. And as Americans, we bristle at that, don't we? Say amen to that, because we do. We don't like to be told we're wrong, we don't like to be told what to do but when we come to that surrender man it makes all the difference in the world doesn't it and so I just thought that was an interesting encapsulation of this point that a family member would shoot another family member because they were arguing over the existence of God 
And then the guy later on says, well, pray for me. Like, wait, you said you don't believe, so why are you asking for prayer? See, most people believe in God, they just don't want to submit to God. Okay, number three. The nature of a rebellious person. The more we sin, the more callous we become to God's authority. Let me say that again. The nature of a rebellious person is the more we sin, the more callous we become to God's authority. And when the rulers rejected John the Baptist, because they did, the same group of guys rejected John the Baptist, they were actually sinning against the Father who sent him. And then when they got Jesus crucified, they were sinning against the Son. And then when they... They stoned Stephen to death. They were really sinning against the Holy Spirit. If you remember the stoning of Stephen, it says his face became like an angel because the Holy Spirit was radiating out of them. And they were so mad and angry, gnashing their teeth, that they hauled that poor boy out and stoned him to death. So here's the progression, and this is how sin works. The Jewish leaders permitted John the Baptist to be killed. I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. But they never intervened. They were happy that John the Baptist was in Herod's prison. They were like, great, we got rid of that troublemaker. He was making us look bad. The Jewish leaders asked for Jesus to be crucified and manipulated the mob to cry what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And then the Jewish leaders put Stephen on trial and end up stoning him to death. So first they, they were just kind of ambivalent. Then they got involved in the process. And the next thing, they're murdered, murdering Stephen himself. That's the way sin works. When, when we are operating our lives under our own authority, we get more callous to God's authority. And, and Jesus is... is warning us, uh, if you want to say it that way, I, I think he's warning the religious leaders. Um, I think we have so much more information about the way we're supposed to live our Christian life that it's not about rules and regulations, it's about a loving relationship. But I want you to see that progression, and you actually see it in Psalm 1. I don't know if you've, you know what Psalm 1, but first you're walking in the path of sinners, and then you're standing in the path of sinners, and then you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. You go from walking to standing to sitting. And it's the same thing when we are trying to get out from the authority of Jesus we become more and more calloused and we become more and more really uh, like the world. Now, where's the good news in all this? Well, there is, there's always good news. Because the opposite of what we've talked about all day long, the opposite of it is true. And that is the more we live under the authority of Jesus, his word, his spirit, the less we sin. And here it is, the more we are free. We love freedom, but the more we are free. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8. He said, to the Jews that believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word, if you come under my authority, if you abide by my word or in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it wasn't some catchy talking point that he had. 
You know, he, he's talking philosophically truth. Jesus is the only way. He is the only path. He's the only one that offers real peace and real joy and real contentment and real wholeness to those who walk with him. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. He is the only way out of our brokenness, out of our dysfunction, out of our addiction, out of our self-righteousness, out of our self-centeredness. I won't make you say this, but I'll say it for you. Because <laughs> I'm saying it primarily for me. I'm narcissistic. And Jesus is trying to work that out of us. Because you're narcissistic too. The moment we're born, we start with that sinful nature to be self-focused, self-centered, and think that life is about us. And as we grow in Christ, we die to ourselves, that's the narcissism, so that we might live for Christ, that he might live in us and through us. And so when we do that, he gives us clarity. He gives us purpose. He gives us meaning. He gives us wisdom. He gives us understanding when we come under his authority because his way is the baseline of objective truth. His way crushes it just crushes our sinful nature. His way transforms us into the men and women that we've been called to be. His way gives us eternal life. And the truth really does set us free. The truth of who Jesus is, that he loves you and I, and he laid his life down for us and redeemed us. The truth is that I am powerless and I cannot fix myself. You are powerless and you cannot fix yourself. You make a lousy God. And when we realize that, we're like, man, I'm powerless. God, you, you, you take this burden on. The truth that I have to die to my, my narcissistic ways, the truth that life isn't about sex, it's not about gender, it's not about power, it's not about money. It's not about who dies with the most toys. It's not about stuff. It's not about vacations. That's not what life is about at all. Because Jesus has become our life. And that's the exciting thing. Because I have passed out of death into life and you have passed out of death into life. And living in the life of Jesus in his presence, it makes you feel like you're, you're flying like Superman. Not asking for a raise of hands, but when was the last time you had a dream about flying? You, you, were, you were flying. Aren't, okay, let's do this. Have you ever had a dream that you were flying? Okay, there's only a few of you. Isn't it the most exciting, incredible dream that you've ever had? I tell you what, when you're walking with Jesus in his presence, under his authority, under his protection, I tell you what, you start to start flying like Jesus, I mean like Superman. Gravity ain't going to pull you down. Dysfunction ain't going to pull you down. Sin's not going to pull you down. Trials, tribulations, your brokenness isn't going to pull you down like gravity pulls you down. You're going to learn to fly. Because the supernatural power of Christ is living inside you. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there are only two options. 
You can either let the stone crush you, or you can build your life upon that stone. And we want to choose Jesus. That first coming under his authority feels so unnatural. The longer we do it, the more we realize the freedom that we have and the joy comes and the wholeness comes and the healing comes. And suddenly those 3 a.m. questions all get answered by truth. And suddenly you're Superman or Superwoman. Let me pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. And we're so thankful that you are the way and the truth and the life and that you have set us free from our stinking thinking and that it is about basing our life on you. I'm so glad that it's not so much about sin and not sinning and and towing the mark, but it is just a, a child surrendering to its father and listening and learning and obeying and having the security and the protection of the Father. As we walk this week in the world that seems to be getting more corrupt each and every day, let us see you as our Father and to come under that umbrella of protection and authority so that we might fly this week. Break the bounds of gravity, break the bounds of our old sinful nature that tries to pull us back into the old way of living. Set us free, Lord. We, we hold you to your promise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.